Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we're going a layer deeper, deeper than ads, deeper than product. Today we're talking about money. I can't believe that for a podcast all about revenue growth, this is the first time we've ever interviewed a finance expert, and I can't imagine a more insightful and delightful conversation than I had with Mr. Sam Hill, founder of Ecom CFO, outsourced financial services for e-commerce businesses. Sam is a veteran of this space and has helped dozens of brands, totaling over 150 million of annual revenue across all categories get complete mastery of their finances for far less than the cost of a dedicated specialized e-commerce CFO. Today we dug deep on knowing your actuals and the numbers beyond revenue that you need to know. The factors that make e-com CFOing trickier than most businesses like reverse logistics and how to make better financial decisions not just in the face of a looming recession but making the right decisions for decades to come. Hope you enjoy this one. On with the show. In a D2C business, marketing is always perceived as the most important role. It's just, what was my return on ad spend? There's a whole bunch of other stuff that needs to be measured properly. We all think we're special. We all think what we're doing is so different than everything else. But the fundamental rules still apply in e-commerce. We're just selling stuff online. We have more levers we can pull and everything moves faster, I get it. But if I could give one piece of advice, do the things that are less sexy, make sure you have a firm understanding about what is going into your financials. That is a way better use of your time than building a sexy dashboard or new ad copy. Sam, welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm super glad to have you here. Answer me this. What's the most important thing a good CFO can do for a D2C company? Wow. Uh, focus on the fundamentals. And I, I think it was, say what you want about Tim Ferriss, but one on his blog, 17 Questions That Changed My Life, he always talks about uh, reflecting instead of resolutions. And it, you get so much out of reflecting on where you've been as a business owner and all of your historical numbers than you do dreaming up and projecting out what you're going to do or who you're going to be or how much your company's going to sell for in five years. I, I think there's so much more value in everything that you've done and not everything that you're going to do. Because what you have done, the real actuals on what you have done is going to be, in a lot of cases, your best prediction about how much you're going to be able to grow in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so many businesses, when they're projecting uh, and budgeting for future years, are saying, okay, I think I can grow. I'm going to grow 20% next year because I'm going to launch all these new collections or these SKUs, or I'm going to start selling in Europe and everything else. And that may be true. I'm not saying by any means that we shouldn't aspire to those things, uh, but we should ground all of those assumptions in reality. And let's start with what were your actions and what do those actions say in the financials? And let's start from there. And if you said two years ago that you were going to do all these other things, well, did you actually do them? Is that coming through in the financials? Did those things come to fruition? Was it as successful as you thought? Um, did it take longer than you thought? Probably. Was it as profitable as you thought? Probably not. 
And so where where does the the rubber meet the road and, and your projections meet reality? And so if we continue to keep making these crazy predictions and projections, but we never actually go back and reconcile our decision making and how we can upgrade our decision making, then I think we're ultimately doomed for failure. And when you say actuals, give me an example. I know actuals are going to depend on every business as to sort of what's important, but you're not just talking about revenue, gross profit here. When you say actuals, what are the, the most critical set of actuals that, that you're, you're speaking of for brands? Yeah. So glad that you asked this question because so often the founders or the, in a, in a D2C business, marketing is the most important role or is always perceived as the most important role. So that's the thing that gets the most attention. So, so often it's just what's my top line and what was my return on ad spend? There's a whole bunch of other stuff uh, that happens in between and below advertising that needs to be monitored and measured and organized properly. And when we think about top line, okay, well, Maybe I was driving a 5X ROAS, but my discounts as a percentage of sales were 20%. So what's the inflection point? And actually, one of the hottest topics, uh, I think, has been reverse logistics with a few of our clients. And how do we actually get all the data to quantify what our reverse logistics cost is every month? First of all, what do we attribute to reverse logistics. So I'm probably using some sort of software like loop returns. So, okay, that's a couple grand a month. Okay. I'm scrapping some or all of my returns. So that's part of reverse logistics. I'm probably paying for the shipping labels for the customers to return it. Okay. That's a cost. And then I'm paying my fulfillment center or the workers that I employ to process those orders and put them back on the shelf and get them in working order. And so if you don't have any idea of what that is, I'm less interested in what your return on ad spend is if we're not looking at the whole business holistically. And maybe you've, uh, I know as the marketing people are going to lose their minds if I say that, but like max out your return on ad spend. But there, there is going to come that point where if I'm looking at where I can allocate my time and my resources as a business owner and where I can allocate my team, there's going to come a point where you can't just keep pushing ads. And there's so many other parts of the business that need a lot of attention and can really move the needle, whether it's discounts or reverse logistics or your returns policy or your fixed costs and your headcount or whatever the case may be. But so when you when you ask me about actuals and how we should view it, we need to view all of the actuals, not just top line, not just ad spend, but everything else in an organized manner to give you a clear picture about how your business is performing. That was a long tangent. But. I love it. No, and I, I think about from the marketer's mind, of course, and the big topic on everyone's mind is incrementality. You know, you gotta go omni-channel, but you gotta be able to show incrementally where your returns are being driven. And I feel like from a financial perspective, it's like breaking everything down to figure out like what your true costs to produce things like for, on the newsletter side, like we're looking into, you know, what does each newsletter cost to produce in terms of like the time from the writers, the time from the editors and everything. So we're really trying to get a deep granular sense of, of what our costs really are so that you can figure out on the financial side where your incrementality comes from, right? Yeah, well, I actually think it's both. Well, it's, it's really all the above. 
we just recently published this article on contribution margin, which I know we talked about last time and I'm sure we can talk about it again. But the big aha moment as I was writing the article is it's not just contribution margin at the business level. It's not just contribution margin at the channel level. And it's not just contribution margin at the order level or at the unit level. You need to do all of them because it's going to give you a different insight to calculate it at each level. And so in understanding the mechanics and how those are dependent and uh, and related is really important. And so I think you need to do that exercise at the newsletter level and then do it at the channel level and then do it at the aggregate business level and talk to your team and and do that deep dive about what is this actually telling me and what new decisions am I going to make because of it? On the it? pilot house side, we've just hired a CFO. We're at now, I think we're we're 150 employees, and now we have a CFO for the group of companies on the pilot house side. And it's just been something that you know I was saying I've been using Google Sheets. It's a bit of like it's the Plato's cave analogy where I have the, this rough outline of like how everything's doing. But for the first time now, monthly actuals coming in on a schedule, talking you know the the curiosity. That's what I always love about my conversations with financial people is the like the deep curiosity they have for all the circumstances of all the revenues coming in. Why isn't this revenue as high as it was this month as last month? And really enjoying the conversations and the focus that it brings. Yeah. And I never thought when I started this business that accounting would be as creative and evolving as it's been. And I'm constantly surprised by the insights and questions that my team brings up like uh, when we're adding new or when our clients are adding new merchant processors, like if they're doing Shopify installment payments, well, we all know we can go look at Shopify installments and see where the fees are and see how much they're charging us. But are those fees actually coming through to your financials? Is it baked into the revenue number? Is it a separate line item? Do you know? How do you know? Is someone actually doing the work in going back to reconcile all that? Do we know exactly how much Shopify owes you at the end of the month? Uh, it's all of these little questions and little quirks that come up that we wrestle with every day. And yes, if you're a if you're selling a hundred thousand dollars a year, then it's not that big a deal, and it's not worth your time to go search down a hundred bucks. But when you're an eight-figure business and that number is thousands of dollars a month and a small change here and there uh, can drive another half of a percent or a quarter percent or a full percent in contribution margin or net income, yeah, it, start, it starts to matter. It starts to be worth your time to dig into some of those issues and, and at least be aware of them so you can make a better decision. But so often I see clients like just look at the subscription number and be like, oh, we need to turn off this LinkedIn premium. Oh, that's a hundred bucks a month. I don't care. <laughs> like spend your time elsewhere and, and, and stuff that's actually going to move the needle. I was, I was just yesterday on Twitter, I was seeing everyone talking about Black Friday cyber money. This is, I think, something that our audience would be really interested in. And it was a, a guy talking about how when he made, per, when he was making purchases for his brand six months ago, he was just sweating the amount that he was buying for Black, you know, for, for Q4, essentially, the amount that he was committing to buy the, the money that he was putting down. And now in the heat of the battle, he's just wishing he had bought more. 
after the fact. So I feel like inventory planning is something that's uh, you know always on the mind of our listeners in a way. What's your perspective on inventory planning for listeners thinking about 2023? I wish I had the magic solution because every you know forecast that we put together with with our clients is usually wrong. I mean, that's just that is the nature of forecasting, and there's always the woulda, coulda, shoulda, and that hindsight's 2020. Um, and we always wish that we would have bought more of the SKUs that sold out and not bought the ones that we thought we were going to sell through. So I don't want to sound like a broken record and go back to understanding your numbers, but if we look at other metrics like inventory turnover, for example, and if we make some reasonable assumptions about, okay, if this is the plan that I put in place and this is the amount of inventory that I order and I execute this plan and I planned to make 15% net income or I plan to make $500,000 in profit or a million dollars, whatever the number is, and that plan succeeds, you did good. (laughs) Good job. Like we are so focused on, we always want more. We always want more. Oh, we always could have done better in every avenue of our lives. And it's okay to meet your goals and the goal that you set out. And it's okay if, if you didn't order enough inventory and stuff was really, really good. Okay. Like let's make a change in how we forecast or do our process or whatever, but it's also based on personal preference and risk tolerance because for every story like that, there's the other story of, Oh shit. I way overordered. Now I've got inventory for a year and I can't make payroll. It was a humble brag, I'm sure, first of all, just to say that he sold out on Twitter. It was Twitter after all. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but also it's crazy scarcity on the other side as well. If you actually do sell out every now and then, it, you know, and you leverage that into your marketing, it can be effective, an effective part of your brand as well. Now, obviously you don't want to be well, the other part the other part is that's fun to say, but I don't know what the numbers are. If your return on ad spend was 1.5 and you gave a 40% off sale to sell out, then I'm not impressed. Yes. And and you made bad decisions and you probably didn't charge 100%. enough. So it's not just about the inventory that you order, but it's also, did you make any money off of it? Could you have made more? Um, what what was your strategy? And then again, how, how that's going to change. When you were talking previously just about all the the cumulative things that go into understanding the finances of a of an e-commerce business. It's, it feels like there's a fair amount of moving pieces. When, you, when you're dealing with inventory, you're dealing with marketing. Like I, I imagine having someone experienced it specifically in e-commerce when it comes to finding a CFO is pretty important. Like you, it'd be hard to transplant a CFO potentially from a totally other industry that didn't get all the nuances of, of the e-commerce biz and have them produce the same results. Is that accurate or is any CFO going to be able to well, walk in? I mean, <laughs> well, thank you for, thank you for teeing up all these great questions <laughs> for me. But uh, of course, I mean, there's just so much terminology and understanding of the mechanics behind ads and the inventory ordering cycles and all these different uh, tools and pieces of software. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is, it, and this is, not going to be as interesting, but it's super interesting to me. And I think it's become more interesting as we've educated our clients is our chart of accounts, which is like the most boring topic in accounting. But if you just set up 
stuff correctly and we put stuff in the right buckets and we define it. And what I mean by that is how do we separate the variable selling costs from the fixed selling costs? Do we include freight in cost of goods or not? Do we include customer shipping in cost of goods? Where do we put shipping income? And this is where I really think the the e-commerce expertise comes into play. Because if you don't know anything about e-commerce, you have, you're going to have no idea how to set up this chart of accounts. And then you're going to provide your client the wrong insight. Because let's take gross margin, for example, because everyone's like, oh, I have 80% margins. Okay, well, is that gross margin? Is that contribution margin? What are you including in gross margin? Are you including shipping? Are you including freight? How are you including freight? Are you just lumping it all together when you receive two containers in your warehouse and you've got a $50,000 expense this month and then a $1,000 expense the next month? Are you accruing that over the year or the, the kind of like life of the container or how long that inventory is going to last? So we have to all get on the same page about what all of these terms mean. And if you don't understand e-commerce and don't do it every day, you are so ill-equipped to be able to do that. And you have to be really close to all these new issues uh, that are coming up. And like uh, wholesale is another great example. So many people are fired up about wholesale. They want to um, not rely so heavily on ads and they want to create a more sustainable revenue source. And hey, if I discount my product 40%, okay, fine. But if I'm going to spend 40% of sales on ads anyway, it's the same thing. But how does wholesale come through on the books? If I'm running my wholesale orders through Shopify, am I flagging those somehow? Am I separating them on the P&L? What about wholesale cost of goods? What about shipping to wholesale customers? Have I broken out all these different elements on the P&L to where I can understand, is my wholesale business profitable? Because maybe I have a salesperson and I'm paying them a bunch of money a month plus a commission. And yeah, I kind of know if they're doing all right, but I need to be able to see and verify that against my financials. And so again, I mean, we talked about this last time, but if I could give one piece of advice, it's do the things that are less sexy and make sure that you have a firm understanding about what is going into your financials and to where you can explain to someone else what your P&L is and what goes into each category and, and your contribution margin, some of these key numbers. That is a way better use of your time than building a sexy dashboard or like dreaming up a, a new marketing channel or like a new ad copy. Uh, so yeah, and now that's more it. than ever potentially <laughs> as well, right? Like I think you've been in the, in the e-com space for a while being a CFO, everyone wants to be profitable. And I guess that's a dream being profitable. You want to be profitable from the first sale. You, these companies need to be profitable in terms of their investors. My, have you just seen a huge push into brands focusing a lot more on profitability over the last couple of years? No question. And I've said this a couple of times to clients recently is most of the time people don't feel the pain until they either go to run payroll and the bank balance is very low or they go to make an inventory purchase and and it's a big inventory purchase and they're like just going to scrape by with the current bank balance. 
we as humans in general, if it's e-commerce or whatever, we usually don't change unless there's real pain or at least perceived pain. And that pain could be real in your bank or that pain could be the social pain that that you may or may not feel by like not looking cool to your family or your friends because you're not the you know business owner and you're not as like savvy as your Twitter profile or your Instagram would lead on. So yeah, but but I do see this shift into thinking more about profitability and giving it a lot more attention. And then the question becomes, okay, well, what is good and what should I set my targets at? And what's the difference between if I'm like more steady state, how should my net income goals change based on steady state or if I'm in growth mode, whatever that means, and all the all these different uh, phases and the phase of life that you're in. And if you are truly motivated to, to double your business in three years or two years or, or, or whatever. So it's all these factors that are so much more personal and human than I think the if you Google search, what's what's a good net income margin <laughs> would tell you. It's definitely been the focus uh, here at D2C and the uh, the Pilot House chain of companies. I'm interested in your business. How does, who comes to join Ecom CFO? And how does someone choose between a fractional CFO and making a CFO higher that's not a, a fractional CFO? How does that work? Do you, first of all, do you define Ecom CFO as a fractional CFO type relationship? Yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no question about that. I think the amount of value and insights that we're able to provide feels like a full-time CFO, but there's a couple things. One, when you're a, even a, a seven-figure business, if you've made it to seven figures, and let's say that you've got a, a 10% net income margin, you're make, so you're making 100 grand. I don't know how much you're paying yourself, but let's just say that you're not paying yourself. You're only paying yourself out of profit. You're making 100 grand. Well, a CFO in a traditional sense is going to cost you probably 80 to 150 a year. So, like the economics just don't make sense whatsoever. It's not until I would argue it's really not until you reach the probably 40 to 50 million dollar number uh, that you really need a full time CFO, with a couple exceptions. The exceptions being if you are a manufacturer, I think that revenue threshold for someone full time is lower. Or if you have a, a more sophisticated business for whatever reason, I think that threshold gets lower faster. But if you're in the five to $20 million range, which is really our sweet spot, and it's our sweet spot for a reason, then you don't need somebody full time. And it's the other issue is not just the CFO. That's just one part. You need a CFO, you need a controller, you need a bookkeeper, and depending on like payroll and bill pay or accounts payable, or maybe accounts receivable if you have a big wholesale business, those responsibilities would roll either to the bookkeeper controller based on on your business and that person's capability. So it's really about bringing the team because for me, like I want to have discussions with my clients about strategy, decision-making, insights, and how to allocate their resources. I'm not doing the reconciliations, but they need to be done. And also the CFO needs to be generally aware of how that's being constructed and can guide those more junior people in directionally. So everyone's 
synced up on how the financials are presented, what they actually mean, and then therefore what insights are we providing to our clients. So again, I mean, of course I'm biased, but I think we deliver that service and that overall value at a fraction, no pun intended, of the cost of a a full-time CFO or a team. And the benefits of high specialization and seeing, getting exposed to so many different clients as well is only going to help the service, I imagine, because you're you're building the experience and the repertoire of what works and what could be done. Yeah, no question, um, because it's very different across apparel versus electronics versus if you're selling toilets. The products and industries are different, and there's some nuances between those and and how they work. Um, But I think uh, also there's a lot of fundamentals that I think some clients want to skip over because we all think we're special. And we all think what we're doing is so important and it's so different than everything else. But the fundamental rules or principles of business. I'm thinking about like Ray Dalio's book, Principles. Those still apply. Or Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragile, which is my, those are like my two business Bibles. Um, All of those still apply in e-commerce. We're just selling stuff online. That's the difference. And we have more levers we can pull and, and everything else with ads and everything moves faster. I get it. But those fundamentals still apply. And the, it's funny, I was reading up on your some of your eight principles previously uh, on one of your uh, other blogs that's out there. And I think a lot of that's probably from Ray Dalio, potentially from Antifragile as well. But I feel like we're, the question I'm trying to get to is like, you're the most financial person I've had on the podcast. Are we in a recession yet? What's going to happen in the recession? And aside from knowing your numbers, and obviously that's going to be the most critical thing, like what should brands be thinking about heading potentially into a really bad recession? Yeah, I think the question about whether or not we are heading into a recession and how bad is it going to be and when is it going to be here is largely irrelevant. I think the question is, is your business prepared to weather any kind of storm? Because if uh, for some of our clients that are more, maybe 60% of their business is Amazon, if their Amazon business gets shut down for whatever reason, whether it's their faults or not, that is more impactful than a recession. Yes. Catastrophic, yeah. And so, and and the same thing for you know your Facebook ads account. If it gets shut down, then that's worse than a recession. So, do you have procedures and the the balance sheet in place to weather these storms? And then again, what does that mean for you? And what is your risk tolerance? If you're riskier, you're probably going to have less cash on hand. And maybe you only have two months of burn if shit really hits the fan and you know you can't pay your suppliers and you can't, uh, can't pay your people. But if I'm more conservative, maybe I'll have four to six months of cash on hand for, uh, for expenses. And or maybe I want to save cash. So if everything does decline so drastically, I can really take advantage of it and buy one of my competitors or double down in in my space or, or whatever it is. But again, it, we talked about this last time. I think we as business owners, and I'm no different running an accounting practice, but essentially an accounting and consulting firm, 
what is my business going to look like over the next 50 years? And there's going to be multiple recessions and there's going to be multiple problems. Employees are going to quit in the middle of something really important or a client's going to call me up and say, hey, I don't have any money or we're changing firms or we're hiring someone new or whatever. And maybe that's 10% of our revenue um, or, or whatever the thing may happen. Our, our website got hacked this year. That was, that was really fun. Uh, so all of these things are going to punch you in the face year after year after year. It's just going to take a different form. But do you have the processes and the balance sheet in place uh, and the fundamental unit economics and business economics to weather whatever the storm is. Agreed. Now, I've read Ray Dalio. I don't think I've read Antifragile. Are there any other sort of principles or big ideas you'd want to share with the audience from uh, what you've kind of put together from, from these readings? From Antifragile, that is 100% the, the biggest takeaway. From Ray Dalio, Ray Dalio's principles, I think um, – one of my other biggest takeaways is the believability index. And because people ask my opinion about different stuff all the time. And Ray Dalio's perspective is you should seek out the advice of someone that has solved the problem that you're trying to solve at least three times successfully. That's the best. If you have to work down from there, fine, but start there. And so, so many times people ask me about stuff and I'll say, okay, my believability is very low here. So it, my, and my opinion doesn't matter. You need to stop seeking out people that haven't solved the problem that you're trying to solve at least three times. And uh, well, this is a personal story, but I think that hit home so much for me because I dedicated 20 years of my life to baseball. And as I was growing up, everyone said that I was really good. I wanted to play professional baseball. That's all I wanted what position? to do. That was, I was a catcher. A catcher. And uh, yeah, I was a little, I was probably 15 pounds heavier at that point. Uh, but, and my knees are, my knees are okay. Thanks for asking. <laughs> but, um, but so many people said, oh, you're going to play professional one day. You're really good. And I was like, okay, cool. And I got all this positive confirmation uh, for years. And, but I didn't seek out the opinion of any scouts or any, minor major league baseball coaches or other professional catchers that maybe would have been honest with me to say like, Hey, you're not that good. Or you may be good in this area, but you don't quite have what it takes. And so when it came to draft day, uh, the MLB draft is over a couple different days. And, you know, I listened to the whole thing live and I was waiting for my call from, uh, from a team and that call never came. And I, I had a you know, emotional breakdown <laughs> for a couple of days. Uh, but then my roommate actually got drafted um, by the twins and I went to go see him play in Beloit, Wisconsin. And once I saw all the other catchers, I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. But no one ever told me that because I wasn't seeking out the people that had a high degree of believability in that particular subject. And I got a false sense of self and a false sense of ego. And uh, I feel like I've had to relearn that mistake on a, a smaller, uh, smaller scale, you know, several times over because I'm very hard headed. But um, that is 100% my biggest takeaway for anyone listening to this podcast, whether they're a, a marketing agency owner, if they're a D2C 
brand owner or just a person on the street. Like that, I think that's the best piece of advice I could get. I love it. And, uh, I'm definitely going to ruminate on that. Cause I, cause you know, being in the, in the media space, it is, you do get a lot of feedback on different things. So it's interesting to know, like to, to think about how much of it is noise and how much of it is actually something to, to be a guiding principle or something that you can uh, bank on. That's thank you for sharing that story. I played house league baseball. I was a left-handed pitcher and was told I could by people that didn't know what they were talking about that it was, if I could have made the, like left-handed pitchers, apparently it's like really easy for left-handed pitchers to make it, you know, it's not easy, but it's easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I was a left-handed hitting catcher. So I was told you, Oh, it's so rare, you know? And then, yeah, I was good. I played in college. Like I was above average, but it's a whole different level playing professionally. Uh, so yeah, that was a, (laughs) was a big lesson. Nice. Well, if you want this kind of folksy wisdom, uh, injected into your business, uh, you might want to check out ecomcfo.co, right? That's the domain. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, our website's pretty straightforward and, you know, we are, are similar to a lot of other firms in that we start with a call and then we, we have a, we know what we're doing cause we've done it a lot and our clients sell about $150 million worth of stuff every year on average. And, um, but we do customize our proposals and our scopes for each client. We just have to, I mean, that that's, um, the way of the world. Everyone is different, even though accounting is relatively the same. Um, but yeah, I would absolutely love to help other clients out. And I, I think another thing that we do differently is we started to put more of our clients together. And because it's not just the insights that me and my team can bring, but like, how do we just put people together? And going back to the believability index, like I can only summarize and provide insights at my perspective. But if I can pair one of our clients with another person in the apparel space that they're not competing, of course, and they can uh, share ideas and um, brainstorm about what they think about the recession or what they're doing or their ad campaigns or, or whatever it is. I think that's a little bit more powerful than just doing your books and financial reporting and helping you work through cash. Can flow. attest to that having just put on this event and brought 50 people here to Victoria. We're planning these future events. And that's that's the whole principle of these events is bring a bunch of people to be mentors who've taken businesses from, you know, 20 to 100 million plus, and then bring a bunch of people who want to get there, who, who are in the 1 million to 5 million range. It's, you know, I read the most impactful book I read last year was Who Not How. And I think it really, it, it fits into that Ray Dalio insight there is it's like, if you find the right person, someone who's done this already, someone who's done it three times already, the insights that they're going to have can just really light a path for you. Yeah. I would say that it's who and how. Yeah. Right. Oh, I like it. <laughs> the who matters, but that you still got to put the work in. It's true. You can't just give it all to them. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that might be a, a different podcast. <laughs> who and how. I like it. Sam, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on the DC podcast. Eric, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm uh, I'm really happy that you haven't had another finance and accounting person yeah. on. This is the first before. ever. The whole and, uh, this whole I'm podcast is about first. money. This is the, this whole podcast is about money. We only ever talk about making sales. It's the first person I've ever talked to on the financial side. So thanks for uh, being my first. Yeah, just keep keep more. Okay, we'll <laughs> keep, keep more what you got. Awesome, brother. Thanks a lot. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Eric. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.